Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast for foodie book lovers where food is the story. Each week I savour four food moments with an author that add depth and flavour to their work. And this week I'm social distancing with Kate Young, whose little library cookbook has been taking me to the food we share in a lifetime of reading. We first met in real life at St Mary's University in Twickenham, where Kate was doing a talk for the Guild of Food Writers about food in children's literature. I suggested to her that, as Kieran Milward Hargrave told us in an earlier episode of Cooking the Books, food is for children's literature, what sex is for adult fiction, a way of accessing desire and pleasure. Obviously, you don't talk about desire in the same way in terms of a human sense in much children's literature. There is, there's elements of it, there's elements of children sort of discovering that that part of themselves, that part that desires contact with other people. But I think that you talk about food in children's literature has the same sort of impact of being able to play a role of talking about desire, of talking about, um, of wanting, of, of, it's sort of fulfilling that that role that sex would play in an adult's book. It's a primal need, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And you asked us as the audience to think of, uh, to get together, to think of uh, children's books where we remembered the food and people came yes. up with wonderful Toad of Toad Hall and <laughs> Alice Through the Looking Glass and Paddington and... And it's many of these books that you you feature in your book, the the little yes, library cookbook. Yes. Not because you're doing this kind of dissertation on on children's on food in no, children's not literature. At all. <laughs> it's your own story. It's the most wonderful way to tell your story. It's a memoir. Thank you, thank you. It is. I mean, it is a cookbook, but it is definitely has a lot of element of memoir and and is me talking about my memories of. You know, lots of it is about children's literature and my memories of growing up reading about food um, and what that was like. It started as a blog, didn't it? It did. It did uh, in 2014. So I had been living in the UK for five years by that point. Um, I moved here from Australia when I was 21. And so I'd been living here five years and I knew that it it felt like I was going to be here for a long time. It felt like a, a committed move that I had made. But despite that, um, and despite that sort of sense that I was in the right place, I was feeling very homesick and feeling very unsure of what the years to come were going to look like. And it was the end of a winter, uh, which I, I do actually love. I love winter, but it, it, I think it was getting me down that year. And I decided that I was going to make a treacle tart from Harry Potter um, because it was Harry Potter's des- favourite dessert. I'd never eaten one before. I had no real idea of what went into one, but I wanted to make it because of this sort of memory of him eating it and enjoying it his first night at Hogwarts. Was it, was the idea inspired by Julia and Julia by any small chance? Uh, it wasn't. I I do love particularly the Julia parts um, of the film. I absolutely love Julia Child and uh, and love her memoir, love reading about her discovery of food. Um, but I just started a blog because it, you know, it felt like a low key way to start sharing recipes and and not put an enormous amount of pressure on myself. But I started putting up a, a recipe a week um, and. And nobody read it for a very long time, which I think is true of many food blogs that you sort of put them up. I I didn't have a dream of it becoming my career. I didn't have a a sort of a plan beyond I would quite like to become better at baking. 
And then what happened? Who found it? Uh, so it was in mid-2015 that I shared an image uh, when Go Set a Watchman came out, the sort of controversial prequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. When that was released, uh, The Guardian were looking for people's memories of reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And I'd read it a lot as a kid, and I'd been given a copy of it by my dad's colleague, Barry, who I remember extraordinarily well. Um, he gave me a copy of it when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and I absolutely loved it and used to read it every year. And I had made the week before a um, a set of uh fried chicken and rolls, which is what Atticus has for breakfast, what Calpurnia makes the morning that uh, he goes and does the first day of the trial. And so I shared that picture with the Guardian as part of their sort of your memories of To Kill a Mockingbird and got an email back from Marta in the books team saying, we found this photo online somewhere else actually, and you can't share other people's photos. But if this is your website with a link to my website, get in touch. We love it. And the next day they put up a series of sort of 10 photos uh, that I'd taken of various recipes with the quotes alongside them. And I went from having sort of a sporadic interest in the blog and I'd, I'd sort of picked up a bit of a following by that point. But that day, I think 20,000 people clicked on it. Oh, it's a blogger's dream <laughs> of a story. I mean, yeah. I have to say, I think it's because the quality is just fantastic. Thank it, you. It, it really Thank is. Be- the, the photographs are beautiful as well. Are, are they still yours? No, of no. Course <laughs> um, so I I do take my all my own photos for Instagram and Twitter and social media and things like that. And when I do blog, I'm still taking the photos. But in the books, the photos are taken by Lean Timms, who I went to university with in Australia. Wow. Keep it yeah. in the family. Fantastic. Yeah, Let's exactly. go to your first food moment. Yes. So it's actually at the end of the book. but It, it was is your, at the end of the book. Your, it was your first experience of being put on the naughty step. You were sent to yes, your room. Yes, indeed. I was. I was. I, I was a very well-behaved, embarrassingly well-behaved, I would say, child. Um, and I very rarely... Uh, needed sort of telling off. Um, but I was grounded once in my life when I was eight years old and was sent to my room for four hours to think about what I'd done. <laughs> there was no grounding because I wasn't going anywhere. I was eight. You know, there's no like keeping me inside when I normally would have been off with friends. Um, but yes, so I was banished to my room for four hours. And I don't think my dad quite clocked that four hours in my room just meant four hours of my bookshelf. And so I read Matilda cover to cover and thought, you know, very frequently after that read about the cake that Bruce has to eat as his And why punishment. was it that particular cake? I think not only is it sort of so integral in the plot, which is sort of, I think, not absolutely rare in children's literature. There's a lot of food that plays a really tangible story role but it wasn't just a family sitting down and having a nice meal it was this amazing beautiful cake that's described in such extraordinary detail um that's 18 inches wide that comes out and is glossy and dark and rich and all of these things that you would want in a chocolate cake but that is punishment 
um, that he is forced to eat the entire thing in front of the whole school. It's such a visceral memory. And when I do do events and ask people to come up with their own food memories, it's invariably one that people talk about because I think it is incredibly memorable, either if you've watched the film that came out in the 90s, because that's an amazing scene. But particularly if you've read the book, I think the detail of that cake is you can almost taste it. It's how I see you reading as well, voraciously. <laughs> yes. you know, just yeah, exactly that. it in yeah. you. You can't get enough. And you write very beautifully about what reading means to you. It's yeah. more than spending time with a book. It it's, is. It is. I think it's it's finding a way into another world. It's um I was I'm I've always been quite an indoorsy child. Um and I had lots of friends at various points, but reading was incredibly important to me and escaping into stories. I had a a very happy childhood. Escaping always sort of comes with this notion that you're trying to escape from something bad. And I, I genuinely wasn't. I was just fascinated by these multiple worlds that you're presented with when you read as a child, that your world exists beyond your street and your school and the, the sort of place that you grow up. And I was always very interested in being in these other places and in traveling from my that you know there's a line in Matilda where she travels you know all over the world from her tiny bedroom in in an English village yeah and you were already when you were growing up in Brisbane absolutely fascinated by the English countryside um, and the English way of life through Enid Blyton Um, those sort of rarefied ideas of of England Yes, um, sort of you're, very you're, early 20th century that picture of England that is a very specific thing that, I, you know, doesn't quite exist anymore and, you know, but does in some ways. Um, but it does in your book. I mean, the way that you describe yeah. your love of afternoon tea, for example. I was yeah. thinking, I want to live like that. Why is my life <laughs> not like that? I mean, I moved here. I, so I was born here as well, oh, which yes, meant that I did grow up with a sense that you know, I didn't think a lot about passports and visas when I was a child. I'm not going to tell you that, but I did have a very tangible sense that if I wanted to live here, that was a a real possibility Um, in a way that it's not for lots of other people because it, it does become a complicated thing of how do you work here and how do you live here? Like I knew that if I wanted to move back here, it was always a possibility. And I grew up in a house where my parents had lived here for 10 years in their 20s, which is why I was born over here. And that meant that it did become a thing that we talked about and that it it was always this very real possibility that I would end up moving here. Let's go to your second food moment. And when I just moved here. It's the secret garden. It is the secret garden. I adore the secret garden and have since I was a kid. Um, And my mum read it to us. My sister and I used to share bunk beds and mum read it to us. I, I really remember that as a child. And I absolutely loved her story. Was desperate to go to Yorkshire, was desperate to go to England, desperate to be in a beautiful garden. Um, but I think reading it as an adult is even more, I sort of reread all the books when I was writing my cookbook. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot you can rely off on in terms of memory, but I did revisit all of these books. And so much of The Secret Garden is about trauma and about sort of recovery from trauma and about ways of re-engaging with the world and of finding safe ways and safe places in which to do so. Because this 
quite uh you know quite tough child you know quite tricky quite grumpy quite moody is so because her parents who weren't very concerned with her when she was growing up die in India and she's brought back an orphan to a house where nobody really wants her. You know, it is quite a traumatic story. Um, but she ends up discovering what is good about life and, and friendship and the natural world and all sorts of things. So yes, it's a book I still love now. And do you kind of imagine yourself in that position as a somebody new to England in your very first job, leaving home before dawn, making yourself <laughs> a porridge to see yourself through this lone person resiliently going off to your to work as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, that sounds very twee. But yes, exactly that. <laughs> um, I am very twee. So it it does work. Uh, yes, I, I worked in a school in far northwest London and was living in Whitechapel. And I had a form class, which meant that I had to be at school at 7.40 in the morning or something. And my journey was sometimes two hours. So I would have to leave my home at 5.40 in the morning with my little pot of porridge that I take on the Hammersmith and City line and and head off um, up to Harrow and and teach there. So yeah, it was a a quite extraordinary introduction to London because I also, and this is the secret garden, you know, uh, l- connections was something that I, I relished uh, and and always deliberately looked for. But I arrived in spring. So I arrived when England was coming back to life. Um, and Shaking off its of, winter coat, you say. Exactly. At the beginning of March. Um, and so every morning that I would, you know, show up and do the 20 minute walk from the end of the bus through the fields to school, which is literally what I was doing. I would see robins and see the world be green and and see flowers that hadn't been there the day before and everything felt like I was seeing England for the first time and and seeing how beautiful it could be. So food moment number three. Yes. Kedgeri. Kedgeri. I adore Kedgeri. Uh, my first introduction to Kedgeri was not the dish itself, um, but was the chamomile lawn, which is a Mary Wesley book that I read when I was... Uh, about 13. Um, and there's a moment in the first chapter where there's a group of cousins who are all in this house in Cornwall for the summer, the summer before the war starts in 39. And they come down to breakfast one morning and Calypso arrives and asks if there's any kedgeree. And Polly says that unfortunately she ate it all. And I had to go and find my mum and ask what kedgeree was and f- discovered that it was something that I would quite like to eat myself. <laughs> but actually, this is much more important to you than just it a is. bowl of rice. It is. I I love Kedri and so does my adopted English family here, um, particularly Chris, um, who I who it you know plays the the role of my dad here in the UK. I I talk about having lots of dads. I have a dad, I have a, a stepdad who's married to my mum, and I have Chris who I've known since I was born and who when I moved back to England he and his late wife Ingela took me into their family and and made me part of it and uh, it's one of his favourite things and I have made it for him more times than I can count. When he came and visited my first flat in London, um, I made it for them for breakfast and and now I see him quite a lot because we both live in the Cotswolds and uh, it's a thing that I still make for us for dinner. You talk a lot about home. Yeah. And you talk a lot about how 
you know, that's a wonderful example of how you make homes. You seem mm. to make homes everywhere. You seem to have amazing friends <laughs> who are all into food. You seem to be having this completely perfect <laughs> foodie life that I'm so jealous of. <laughs> but you also have a really interesting relationship with what it isn't. The yearning, the the loss of comfort, the space between it, you're trying to find it all the time. And a lot of your, you know, sort of intention to lose yourself in the books of your childhood, for example, are about somewhere else. Tell us where you are with that notion of home at the moment. Um, I mean, it is a an incredibly difficult thing, literally this week, um, because, I mean... It, it will come as no surprise to people who listen uh, that we are recording this via Zoom because we're both self-isolating because that is the world that we live in now. Um, we're recording this in the first week of April. And so I have for 16 days now uh, not been in contact with another human being um, besides the people I try and dodge when I run by the canal. Um, I bought a flat last year uh, for the first time. And and I adore my flat. It is comfortable and it has beautiful views and it is in a town in the Cotswolds that I love to live in. Um, and so my home feels quite tangible at the moment. If, you know, I've really found a place that that I can take up space. And I think for a long time I was in other people's homes and that concept of how much space you take up and how how much of an impact you're having on other people is a really big deal and and prevents you sometimes from feeling absolutely as at home as you would like to be. Even if the people are really kind and open and want you to be there, it's still you're taking up space in somebody else's home and that prevents it from feeling like yours. And this place feels like home. This is this is my home. And I have a number of homes still. I've, you know, I've got the houses I grew up in in Australia and I've got Chris's house in the Cotswolds and I've got a spare bedroom at Liv's place that I can, you know, that I can call my own. But I'm sorry, Liv, if you're listening, I can't technically call it my own. Um, <laughs> but this place feels like home, except that right now I can't have anyone over and I can't open my doors to other people. And and so much of what I count as home and so much of what I value is having a place where I can host people and where I can invite people in. And so although at the moment I am in possibly the most comfortable position I've ever been in in England in terms of having to self-isolate, I'm not renting. I know lots of my friends are and I'm thinking about that all the time and, and that reality. I'm in a place of my own rather than sharing with lots of flatmates who I maybe don't get along with. You know, all of those things make it really a good place to be right now, except that it doesn't feel like home because there's nobody else here. You're a feeder, aren't you? I mean, yeah, I I, I find that term sometimes problematic. Um, but yes, that is literally what I want to do. The way that I show love and affection and the way that I connect with people is often by feeding them. And so, yes, I it is a huge part of my life, not only my personal life and my interactions in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but and and one-on-one -on -one interactions, but really tangibly, it's what Liv and I do as a job. We go and cater weddings, we cater big events, we do pop-ups. You know, we are literally 
like professional feeders and and we can't do any of that right now so all of the weddings we had booked in for 2020 aren't happening they're postponed until 2021 or afterwards and so a huge chunk of my life and what I do and how I play a role in my community and and within my friends isn't happening right now and I'm struggling with figuring out what that looks like let's go to your final food moment Let's. It is bread, butter, and honey from my capture the castle, Dodie Smith. Yes, it is, and and I guess that's the the bit in the book where I talk most about finding home. Um, and you wrestle with the concept of home. You say yeah. it's an intangible idea, one that speaks of family and familiarity so much more than mere bricks and mortar. Yeah, it's true. Tell me about how bread, butter, and honey <laughs> fits into your ever-changing idea of life as an immigrant in a home that you create for yourself that has no one in it i think that bread butter and honey are i mean particularly bread and butter this quote by the way is from um i i think i i could comfortably call it i I really wrestle with the term my favorite book because i want to name about 400 as soon as somebody says what's your favorite book but i capture the castle i think is very real in in that list and and I think would probably count as my favorite book. And there's a moment in that book where Cassandra says I shouldn't imagine I shouldn't think even millionaires uh could eat anything nicer than bread, new bread and real butter and honey for tea. And that's a sort of perfect and lovely quote of yes, bread and butter are this these incredibly simple things that you know that most people have in their house at you know at any one point in time and yet they are extraordinarily good and there is something about the smell of fresh baked bread and about the taste of butter that you've made yourself from cream and all of those things that are incredibly homely they're very humble foods but they are very reassuring they're dependable they work they provide comfort they are the start of so many other great meals. They're such wonderful staples and things that I really like to make. Um, and so they were, yeah, that that they're incredibly important. And I wanted to have that bit in the book, not only because I love that part of Fair Capture the Castle, but because bread and butter speak of home to me. They are the things that I always want when I get home. You say there's an old wives' tale that tells you to spread your cat's feet with butter when moving home to ensure the cat feels comfortable in a new place. And you say that bread and butter in your most homesick moments grounds you and reminds you that you've made your own home. Yes. I, I was doing research on butter when I was reading this bit and came across that old wives' tale, which I absolutely love that you sort of, that butter could comfort or could could make a cat feel as if it's it's come to a familiar place um and and i i feel very similarly that butter and and bread are what i want when everything else feels too complicated when everything else feels too hard and 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 too much that they are sort of grounding and simple and good like at heart very good food Kate Young, thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cooking the Books. If you like what you hear, do please rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week. Bye.